0: Uh, good evening everyone, and thank you, Stephen. Uh, one of the one of the most controversial subjects to talk about in church is uh, is money. There are a number of other subjects that make people uncomfortable whenever you kind of discuss them in a public worship setting or in a religious context, but money is is definitely one of the most contentious and Many of you know, because I've shared this on quite a few occasions, that I really don't like talking about money up upfront uh, for all kinds of reasons. If you want to know those reasons, you can ask me afterwards. But for all kinds of reasons, I really do hate talking about money up front. And yet, whenever uh, you launch out on a series called Controversial, Jesus, which is looking at lots of things that Jesus said that you kind of wish he hadn't said you quickly realize that you're going to have to talk about money at some stage and at some point because Jesus controversially talked about money at lots of points. In fact, and and this is something I know many of you know already, but Jesus spoke more about money and what we do with it and our attitude towards it and our stewardship of it than he did about any other subject apart from the kingdom of God. He talked more about money and possessions than he did about prayer and faith combined. He spent more time dealing with Dosh than dealing with heaven and hell. In fact, if you were to teach on money as much as Jesus did, then apparently you would have to make that a topic or theme every third Sunday. And that would be controversial. But as we get into this, uh, I want to invite a little congregational participation because it's been a while. So I'm gonna get you to talk to the person beside you, if you know them, great, if you don't, even better. If you don't wanna talk to them about what I'm gonna ask you to talk about, you can talk about anything you wanna talk about, okay? But here's what I would like you to talk about, right? I want you to come up with one thing that Jesus said about money, or about possessions, or about what we do with our finances. Just one thing, you don't have to quote him verbatim, but if you just get a gist of what he said, that would be brilliant. So have a chat with the person who said you come up with one thing that you can think of that Jesus said about money. All right? Go for it. Okay. That's gonna be a wee bit of feedback. Right. Somebody shout me out just as I say, it doesn't have to be exactly what he said, but just gist of what he said, one thing. You cannot serve God of money, and someone else here, John. I think it was you. Cannot serve two masters. Great, so I have it in stereo there, Dorothy and John. Thank you. How many people are going to? Uh, everybody's. Got, how many people had that one. Yeah, lots of people. I knew you. Right. Anything else? Yes, George. Thank you. What shall it profit a man or woman if the gains the whole world and yet loses their soul? The rich, sorry, yep. The rich, less. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yep. Anything else? Jesus said. Okay. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Yep. Yeah, money is the start or the root of all evil. Is that? Is that? not quite, extend that, and I know it was, somebody else is going to say, was that Jesus or was that Paul? I think it was Paul, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's not, money's the root, what is it? The love of money. Oh, very good. (laughs) (laughs) I know, Yarrow, you're only just pushing it out there to make sure everybody was with us, so that's great. (laughs) Anything else Jesus said or taught about money? Yeah, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. Brilliant. Yeah, where your heart is, there is your church. Brilliant. Pardon? Yeah, the widows made okay. So the whole giving, or yeah, she gave all that she had, and God saw that. Okay, I mean there lots. Uh, the specific sin of I mean, we can look at the specific sin of Jesus that I do want to highlight. Uh, is the one that's found in Luke 16. It is the very first one that John and Dorothea came up with. Uh, It's in Luke 16. It also appears in Matthew 6 as part of the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. But in Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus said this, and we know it well, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. God and money. And so Jesus, it seems, was absolutely clear that money is a rival God, possibly the greatest. It was in his day, it still is in our day, maybe even more so in 21st century Western society, where we all find ourselves living in such a strongly consumerist, materialistic, cultural environment. But the way Jesus talks about money, the language that he uses here in this version it's about service, it's about love, it's about devotion. And so Jesus explicitly shows and reveals that, that he sees it as a potential object of wholehearted adoration. It's a viable threat to true worship. And we know that money and and possessions, or money possesses, sorry, a unique and a deceptive power. It it can consume our thinking. It can distort our decisions. It can become the be-all and end-all, the thing that determines our agendas and our outlook, our goals and our ambitions, our sleep patterns and our worry levels. Someone put it like this, like a charismatic lover Money has the power to win our allegiance, the pull to make us lean on it for security, and the capacity to convince us of its promises. Like a charismatic lover, money has the power to win our allegiance, and it does. The pull to make us lean on it for our security, and the capacity to convince us of its promises. Money makes the world go round It is mesmerizing, it's intoxicating, it's attractive. But if we're not careful and disciplined in ways about money and about our attitude to it and our approach towards it, it won't just make the kind of world revolve, it will send our heads and our hearts and our affections and our worship spinning in all kinds of less than helpful directions. And when that happens, it's dangerous. And one of the fascinating aspects of, of that saying of Jesus in Luke 16 and in Matthew 6, and I drew attention to this a few years ago as, as a part of another series, is the fact that in our Bibles, and, and specifically in the NIV, and if you do want to look, this up, look it up with me, we are going to read more of this later, but page 1050 in the Red Pew Bibles, but you'll notice that money is capitalized Money at the end of that sentence is given a capital M. And so here's my question, why? Why is money given a capital M? And specifically the NIV translation, why do you think it is? Somebody want to feedback? Why a capital M? Surely it should just be a small M. Brilliant, Dorothy! Don't you love it when someone from Wycliffe is here <laughs> and finds me out? Probably, but I... yeah, Dorothy, tell us more. I'm going <laughs> to tell us more. What? Mammon. mammon, exactly. <laughs> Correct. So, if you've a King James version of the Bible, a New King James version. I'm not sure about the ESV. Is anybody got an ESV or an RSV? Is it? money says, ESV says money, but certainly the older translations, mammon. And and the definition of mammon in the the older translations, it says it's money, it's wealth, it's riches. But, and and this is how many people look at this, but, but just as wisdom is personified in Proverbs, so mammon is personified to refer to the God of riches, it would seem or it can be used to refer to an idol that was worshiped as the God of riches. riches here is a, is a painting, and this is back from 1909 by Evelyn de Morgan, called The Worship of Mammon. And so in Luke 16 and in Matthew 6, Jesus is stressing the point that money, capital of him, is a competing personal God in your life. It's God-like. It has the power to dictate and to dominate. And therefore, says Jesus, you can't serve both it and God. Money can be a good servant. And it is a good servant. We all need it. I'll say more in a minute. But it can become a controlling master. And this is the issue. And whenever money becomes a controlling master, if that happens, then the impact on your life generally will be negative. But in terms of your relationship with God, if money becomes your master, then your relationship with God and your growth as a Christian disciple will suffer greatly. Now, I say money is an essential part of life. We, we can't live without it, but living with it can be a daily challenge for many people. In and of itself, as we've said, money isn't evil, but the love of it plays havoc with our souls. And so whenever money becomes the kind of focus of our, of our affection, whenever the pursuit of it takes over, whenever that takes precedent, then the teaching of Jesus kind of needs to be replayed and refreshed, irrespective of how controversial it is. God has got to be number one in our lives. We sang earlier, you are my all in all. I mean, those are powerful words of saying, God, you are number one. You are everything. And the very first commandment, written in stone confirmed that we're to have no other gods, no other gods before capital G, God, before Yahweh. And when Jesus was summarizing all the commands, he stressed the need, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Total devotion is required, complete commitment. And so money is one-off, or it's, not, it's certainly not the only one, but it's certainly one of the main contenders to become a God in our lives today. It's one of the main contenders that can split and compromise our hearts, and Jesus knew that. As did virtually every other New Testament writer, and therefore he spoke about it time and time again, and he, he warned against its potential negative influence on a number of occasions. And here in Matthew sixteen and or in Luke sixteen and Matthew six, he pushes his listeners, and he pushes us, the readers of his teaching, to ask the simple yet deeply personal and profound question: Where does our ultimate love and loyalty lie? Where does our ultimate love and loyalty lie? It's either or. It cannot be both and. It's either God or it's money. So which is it going to be? If God is going to be our true master, then we need to master mammon. Now, this one verse that I have I've shared it does stand alone. It does make a very powerful and provocative statement and point all by itself. But as everyone knows, you've got to be really careful about plucking individual verses out of context. And therefore, it is important that we investigate the kind of situation and circumstances into which Jesus spoke it. And as you look at 16 as a whole, you discover that this verse concludes a much bigger chunk of teaching. And and I know the the chapters weren't in the original, uh, so we kind of need to look at what went before it. And in in Luke 15, you have things like the prodigal son, and then what goes after it is the whole rich man and Lazarus. So this, this fits in a whole teaching block about the importance of what we have and what we value. And this particular verse, 13 of Luke 16, comes at the end of a much. It kind of concludes a much bigger chunk of teaching, towards the end of a parable, probably one of the most puzzling parables that Jesus ever told. And we we know Jesus used parables time and time again to teach and to communicate. It was one of his favourite techniques. And parables, we've often defined them and described them as many dramas in picture language. And Jesus told these mini-dramas in picture language time and time again, there's over 40 of them, people say. But let me give you a fuller definition, and I've shared this before a number of years ago, came from a guy called C.H. Dodd, way back in 1953. I think it's one of the best definitions of parable, but this is what he said. A parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, And leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. It's a mouthful, but it's brilliant. And this parable in Luke 16 that leads up to that controversial saying of Jesus, it is definitely an arresting and a strange one that provokes your thinking. And and for just the rest of my time, I want to look at it again. And I have looked at this parable before. On a couple of other cases, last time was about four and a half years ago, and so if you were here on a Sunday night, four and a half years ago, some of this might ring bells. But most of you don't even remember what I said last week, so that's okay. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're, we're going we're to read what Jesus said in the lead up to that controversial saying. So please let's stand for the public reading of God's Word. As I say, it's page 1050 in our Red Pew Bibles, Luke sixteen one to 15. Jesus told his disciples, so he's speaking to his disciples, although as we discover at the end of this little section, there were other people listening in. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, so he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? my master is taking my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first debtor, how much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe a thousand bushels of wheat? He replied, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Okay, grab a seat. uh, The parable, which kind of takes up the first sort of eight verses or or so, it's a fascinating story, but what does it mean? Like, what does it mean? That's a good question. And so this particular parable has created a lot of head scratching, a lot of angst, a lot of spilt ink amongst Bible commentators for years, because it is a really tricky one to interpret. But as we look at it, I want to suggest three things that we can take from it about handling money that will enable or ensure that money doesn't occupy a place in our lives that it shouldn't do. Now, as I've said before, these are not the only things that you can take from this mini-drama in picture language. I know that. This is not the only perspective on this parable, but I hope it might be a helpful one. I'm not gonna go through every single verse that we just read together and try to unpack it in detail. But here are just three things regarding our attitude to money. Be smart, be generous, be responsible. Be smart with your money, be generous with your money, be responsible with your money. And so Jesus starts this story by telling us that a rich man has discovered that his manager is wasting his possessions. And so the the rich man challenges his employee and says, I want you to give an account of yourself. I want you to give an account of your actions. But he clearly allows his manager some time to do that before he gets rid of him. It seems he's almost given him the opportunity to work his notice. And so the, the manager has an opportunity and some space to think. And so he considers the situation and he comes up with a plan, and it is a cunning personal plan for gain, Because he realizes, you know, I can't do manual work. That's too hard. I'm certainly not prepared to beg. That's too humiliating. And so off he goes and he reduces the amount of money that different people owe his boss. He writes off a pile of debt. I mean, he halves the first person's debt. And the reason he does it is that so when when the time comes that he's out on the street and out of a job, he can knock the door of those debtors and call in a favor because he's given them a favor and they will welcome him into their homes. Now, if you kind of pause there in this story, you would assume that whenever the rich man, whenever his boss finds out what the manager has done, he's gonna lose it. He's gonna terminate his contract immediately. There's no more opportunity to work as notice but that's not what happens. And this is the bit that sends everybody's head spinning. Because in verse 8, it says that he is, this is the manager, is commended as a dishonest manager. And he's commended because he acted shrewdly. And going back to our kind of definition of, a, I mean, if that doesn't arrest your thinking and leave you wondering, what is Jesus getting at? Then I'm not sure anything will. Like, what sort of an example is this? Here is someone who has squandered his employer's possessions. That's the first accusation. And then he's proceeded to rob him of money that's owed to him by writing off people's debts. And yet his manager or his boss turns around him and commands him as shrewd admires him for his ingenuity. Are we suggesting? Is Jesus suggesting we should do that? Well, this conundrum, as I say, has sparked lots of discussion and debate. But let me let me offer you one possible explanation of it as opposed to way around it. But one possible explanation of it. And it's based on what is actually said. In, in verse eight. You see, it seems that Jesus identifies the manager's behavior as typical, and look at this, of people of this world. He goes on to say there in verse eight, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewd. For the people of this world are more shrewd, in dealing with their own kind than are the people of late. So he, he, he kind of implies, and this is what is thought by what it's said here, he kind of implies that people of late, disciples of his, have something to learn here. So the three things about handling money from this puzzling parable, be smart, be generous, be responsible. So let's think about this idea of being smart with our money. And as I've done before, I want to read verses 8 and 9 only this time from the message because I think this helps us kind of get our heads around it. I love the way captures this. So they're on the screen. Now here's a surprise. This is verse 8 from the... Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. So there's a sense of, she said, I want you to be smart with your money. Like the manager was, even though it wasn't his money. But I want you to be smart with money. I want you to handle it carefully, but I want you to handle it creatively. Only do it honestly for what is right. What does that mean? Well, partly it could mean that we need to use our heads like the manager to prepare for the future and not only our immediate future, but also our eternal one as well. That seems to be what is implied here. But maybe instead of smart, maybe we don't like the phrase smart, maybe the better word to use here, the more biblical word to use here along these lines is wise. Be wise in how you handle money. In other words, use it in ways that are consistent with biblical wisdom. This manager was streetwise and it paid off. And so we need to be wise in how we use money because if we're wise in how we use money, then it will retain its right place in our lives and it will not become our master. Secondly, Be generous. The shrewd manager certainly was generous. I mean, you can only imagine how delighted his master's clients were with his final visit. We only owe how much now? Half. You only owe half. And Jesus actually instructs his listeners, look at verse nine. He actually instructs, he says, I want you to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And in other words, and again, one way of understanding this verse is, use whatever you have for the good of others. Because that way, you invest eternally, or to use another kind of biblical verse, you lay up treasure in heaven. So be generous with your money is another way to make sure that money retains its right place in your life. And it doesn't master you. It doesn't become the thing that you serve. And how do we give generously? How does the, the, the Bible kind of teach us to give generously? It says give it voluntary, give cheerfully, give sacrificially. That is what it means to be generous with our money. Give voluntarily. Give cheerfully give sacrificially. And it goes alongside being smart with our money, because if we're not smart, if we're not wise with our money, then we reduce our chances and opportunities to be generous. One of the most fundamental ways to make sure that you do not serve money is via open-handed generosity, where you share your resources and what you have with others. And then this final thing, be responsible, or be trustworthy. And and this is where many people feel that that there's a sense of irony in what Jesus was teaching here, because the shrewd manager certainly wasn't. He wasted his master's possessions, which is why he lost his job in the first place. And then he stole from him by reducing what people owed him. I don't know how many of you do have the King James Version of the Bible in front of you. But if you do have, you will know that the word manager does not appear in that particular translation. What is the word that appears in the King James Version? Anyone know? It's the unjust what? Steward. steward. Absolutely. And so how does this parable begin in the King James Version? There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And then it goes on to say that he turned round to his, man, his steward and said, give an account of thy stewardship. You see, the rich man had trusted the manager with his money and expected him to be a good steward, but he wasn't a good steward. And as a result of him not being a good steward, their relationship was deeply damaged. And so the steward was supposed to serve his master, but instead he got distracted and started serving his master's money, which then became his master. And it's at this point that our key verse comes in, and then Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve God if your attitude towards money is to see it as the goal, to see it as an end in itself, just like this dishonest manager or steward did in this parable because it ruined their relationship. And money has a habit of doing that ruin human relationships. It can ruin our relationship with God. And so we are called to love and serve God alone and prove that we can be trusted with the resources that he has given us. At the end of the day, everything, everything belongs to God. And we are stewards of what he has given to us. And therefore, we must use it responsibly. We must be trustworthy in how we use our money. And if we are responsible and trustworthy in how we use what has been given us by God, then we will make sure that we never serve mammon. And if we, if that is the choice we make, then says Jesus here, you can then be trusted with true riches. Well, well, what are those? Well, look at verses 10 and 11. Whoever can be trusted with little, or whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in the way you have handled worldly wealth, who will trust you within this phrase? True riches. See, we need to be responsible in how we handle what's been given to us. And rather than than allow money to become our primary focus, we need to remain totally focused on God, our real master. And that then means we can embrace the true riches of his kingdom seek his kingdom first, then all kinds of things will be added onto you. But God has gotta be the focus. God has gotta be our priority. God has gotta be number one. And therefore those resources that he has given to us, if we handle them well, if we handle them responsibly and in a trustworthy manner, then we will be able to handle true riches that God will just give us because he is an open-handed, generous God. So be smart, be wise, be generous, be responsible, be trustworthy with your money, and that way you will not allow it to become the object of your love, the center of your attention, the master of your life. But in verse 14, and I drew attention to this earlier, we discover that as, that as Jesus told this parable to his disciples primarily, because that's the way that the chapter starts, it turns out that the Pharisees were listening in And we discover the Pharisees' response to what they heard. The Pharisees, and then this bit, who loved money. Whenever they heard all this, they were sneering at Jesus. See, it appears that money was their true love. The Pharisees who loved it was their master. And Jesus knew exactly who it was they were serving and so he says to them in a not so subtle critique of them in verse 15, he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. So you, you come across to people as if you've got this all sorted, that you're serving and loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. But you know something? God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. And God knows my heart. And God knows exactly what is first in my life. Just as he knew what was first in the Pharisees' lives, he knew what they truly love and he called them out. And so God knows the place that money occupies in my life and in my worship. And so I need to be smart and I need to be wise, and I need to be generous, and I need to be trustworthy, and I need to be responsible with money in order to keep, its, keep it in its proper place as opposed to taking God's rightful place.